Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org. We continue our podcasts about the war which Russia unleashed against Ukraine. This series is brought to you by Internews Ukraine and Ukraine Crisis Media Center to Ukrainian media NGOs. My name is Vladimir Yadmolenko. I'm chief editor of ukraineworld.org. We are making this podcast with Tetyana Harkova, who is in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Hello, Tanya. Hello. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash ukraineworld. So the topic we would like to talk with you today is uh, a specific trend which we are now noticing, the trend which is calling to help Putin save the face. And uh, this is this is a trend noticeable in some of the capitals, European capitals. So we want to discuss it. Of course, there are also another trend is that, okay, let's let's discuss it. Let's uh, let's negotiate with Putin. Let's find a, a negotiation compromise. So what do you think of this trend, Tanya? Yes, indeed, this is a quite a dangerous trend we are observing in many European capitals, in many uh, high political voices. For example. Uh, maybe in the first place we would mention Emmanuel Macron, French president, who, um, as uh, Zelensky, president of Ukraine, told several days ago that he uh, suggested that Ukraine should uh, should uh, do some concessions in order to to make possible for Putin to save his face. And the slogan is "Don't humiliate Russia." So this is a kind of strong message: "Don't humiliate Russia now," because now what we see that it, we see that Russia lost the first period, if uh, at least first period of this war, in Kiev, Chernigiv and Sumy. And what's happening in Donbass now, it's also, it doesn't look like victory for Russia, neither. So it's kind of a stage we are now, when we see that Russia cannot win the war. So And some polit- politicians are talking about how to arrange things for Russia not to feel humiliated, for Putin not to feel in the corner, you know, uh, to avoid dangerous developments, to avoid escalation maybe, because there is still some, uh, some, some threats of escalation, some fears from the West of escalation, but also just to arrange things because ra- um, many politicians present that as a pragmatic choice. So let's be pragmatic. Let, let's not uh, humiliate Russia because anyway Russia will not, will not, uh, will not uh, travel anywhere. So it will be always there in, in, in close to Europe. So let's arrange things with Putin. And uh, for us, I mean for Ukrainian political class, but also for Ukrainian civil society, this is something Mm, that we cannot accept at all for many reasons. And first of all, because we understand that this is a, a at least very dangerous way. Because Russia, we, what we need now, we, we need uh, not to be afraid to tell the word victory for Ukraine and defeat for Russia. And it will be much better scenario for Russia as well. Because Russia needs radical changes uh, in its politics, in society, etc., etc. And we've already observed, I'll just mention one thing and you'll maybe continue. We've already seen uh, what happens if you concede to Russia in 2014, when uh, a lot of uh, European, and not only European, I mean all international leaders, 
were against any kind of military response to annexation of Crimea. So at that very time, Ukraine agreed to this annexation in a way. And we did nothing about Donbass. There were no military operations in Donbass. And what happens next? Just in eight years, another war starts, bigger war, much bigger war. So if we start what is happening now with a kind of a ceasefire and a kind of diplomatic uh, negotiations with Russia, we will have as an outcome in several, just it's a question of several years, just another war with Russia. Exactly. That's that's the experience, that's the lessons that we that we learn because Ukrainians did negotiate with Russia. Our previous president, Petro Poroshenko, despite the fact that he was presenting himself as a big patriot of Ukraine and he did many good things, but his strategy was to negotiate with Russia. He was uh, uh, brokering the Minsk agreements, Minsk I, Minsk II, But unfortunately, Russians are always trying to make this strategy of coercion to peace. So to do something militarily, to, uh, to, uh, to, to, to make a harm on your enemy, on your opponent, and then say, okay, we will negotiate. Minsk agreements were certainly an agreement on Russian terms because it legitimized more or less, the annexation of Crimea, occupation of Crimea, because it didn't mention Crimea. And it was uh, uh, putting Donbass back to Ukraine, but on Russian terms, as a Russian enclave. And, uh, well, this didn't work. So uh, this didn't work. Ukrainians could not accept it, because th- this is this is the very, uh, very strange kind of an agreement that only one side benefits from it. And that's what we see now. That's what what we keep repeating is that any new occupied territory in Ukraine leads to another occupation, to more occupation. And more aggression as well. And more aggression and more violence. Uh, Ukraine was already occupied, part of Ukraine, we can say, since 1991, when Russian military fleet, the Black Sea fleet, was stationed in Sevastopol. This was already a hybrid occupation. If there were no military bases, Russian military bases, no occupation of Crimea could physically take place. This is because Russia had these military bases that it could occupy Crimea in 2014. If uh, Crimea hadn't been occupied, then Mariupol tragedy would not have happened right now. Imagine if we make concessions now, that means that southern part of the southern Ukraine and eastern Ukraine is in Russian terms. Well, very, very simple prediction is that in a couple of years, Russians will use this platzdarm, will use these territories to attack further, and not only Ukraine, because from Kherson there is a way to Odessa, through Transnistria, also occupied by Russians, attacking Moldova, and then, you know, NATO countries as well. They will definitely do so, and they are cutting now Ukraine from the sea, so already they have Kherson, but they are blocking ports in uh, Odessa as well, and they have Mariupol and other ports, so economically for Ukraine it is a huge loss. Let's talk about that, this is important. And uh, they will, uh, for Ukrainians, such, such a ceasefire... 
is a disaster because uh, it will mean for Ukrainians that we lost the war. Because now uh, another argument is that if you look now what's happening in the Ukrainian society, so if you look, if you listen to what people are talking about, Ukrainians will never agree to any kind of ceasefire now because we already paid a huge price in this aggression. So um, thousands of people lost their lives. Uh, many cities are destroyed or partially destroyed. Not Mariupol, but also Kharkiv. So huge losses in infrastructure everywhere in every region of Ukraine. So and now we feel that Ukrainian army is starting started to counterattack. At least is preparing a counterattack on Russia, express especially with this land lease. I mean, with this massive. Uh, uh, Western weapons, uh, which are to arrive in Ukraine shortly. So at that very moment, Ukrainian society feels that we are able to win this game. If you look on the map and you look at uh, at this uh, map of occupation back in February and early March, and, and you compare to the map of the occupation now, you will see that Ukraine has already uh, liberated more than half of the territories occupied back in February and March. So it means that even without land lease and without these massive weapons arriving from the West, we were able to liberate our territories. Why should we stop now? This is a question. Um, a question to liberate all the territories. But uh, another dimension of this uh, danger to talk about ceasefire, to talk about negotiations now, is that not only we Ukraine is aspiring to stop Russia and to liberate its territories, but we are we think this would be just to uh, to ask for reparations because Russia has to pay the price for its aggression. And without that, they will not understand. They, they should recognize their fault. Without that historical recognition of the guilt, there will be never a chance for a different Russia. And what, while we are talking about this scenario as a better scenario for Russia, we are also talking in the name of Russians who are against the war and who don't want to live in this kind of a totalitarian society justifying military aggressions every decade and uh, depriving people from their liberty because Russia is not democracy. And uh, this is a historical chance not only for Ukraine, I would stress, but uh, also for Russia. I mean, and when Macron says, for example, don't humiliate Russia, and he, he, he'd like to say that let's stop here, uh, he is not thinking about this different Russia. I mean, people who are not who don't agree with the war and who are who could be a basis for this new country, for this new philosophy. Let's not forget about that. I'm afraid there is also a cynical motivation that uh, European politicians, European business understand that if uh, you, Russia occupies Ukraine, if it destroys territory it will rebuild it on its own cost. For example, imagine that Mariupol stays in Russian hands, 
they will need to rebuild it on uh, on their own cost e- on their own cost if ukraine liberates these territories of course the eu as a the most moral authority without any irony uh in the world which which spends so much money on development aid on reconstruction etc would be obliged to think about the reconstruction and here we should we should very clearly say to our european colleagues that reconstruction should be done on russian cost in any way so think about uh think about expropriating russian assets think about sanctions think about uh, some other others other things but uh, we should go away from this virtual uh, cycle that you know russia destructs and then europe rebuilds i think this is important the, the second thing mm, and this is was very well put today i think today or yesterday on twitter by timothy snyder in his long thread about uh criticizing this idea of of uh, let's not humiliate russia he rightly pointed out that russia is a virtual society and that's also was our point in this podcast and on ukraine world when we argued that russia's war is not only against ukraine europe united states uh, civilization but it's also against reality and russian specific ideology uh, which was born in the well reborn in the 90s uh was characterized by a, a, a mistrust or i would say even uh, disgust for facts for empirical reality for something that you can verify and uh therefore this is a virtual world a real virtual world uh, done by russian propaganda and russian citizens if uh if putin will decide that it, he will change the attention of russian citizens he would do it very easily russians will forget about ukraine and focus on something else yeah they should face the reality so say when 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 we are talking about the need for russia to recognize the guilt so first of all they should face the reality because what russia does now for example in mariupol so they, now they are presenting after the evacuation of uh, the last military from azovstal uh, the um, operation is still going on we don't know a lot of details but uh, we do know that uh, azov battalion and other uh, ukrainian military are no more in mariupol so uh, they are trying to present all this destruction and all these crimes all these mass graves as a guilt of ukrainian army so th- that's what we, they will be doing for 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 years and maybe decades say and that's why they are uh, trying to present this azov battalion like terrorists and now they, to judge them and maybe it will be pretext not to exchange them so we don't know exactly but at least there are some some declarations coming from from russian parliament from russian duma in this direction so it is quite dangerous for 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 us for ukraine but they are not facing reality so they're not recognizing their guilt so if you face reality if you see what russia really does so you have to see yes we are guilty so we have to pay we have to pay we have to acknowledge our historical guilt and something has to be changed you know we have to change our attitude towards reality you know? it it happened it never happened in russian history that russians accepted their guilt and therefore and therefore decommunization and destalinization even in in russia was very difficult process so if we're talking about 
other countries and that makes a huge difference we can we can criticize european imperialism american imperialism but there is always we can hear this discourse about mea culpa it, this discourse is present with all the empires western empires that that we know and uh starting from britain through france through through germany through america etc of course we can criticize it some people can say that it is hypocritical uh, there is a lot of discussion but the difference of russia is that it has never accepted any guilt so if you tell russians you are guilty in dividing poland in 18th century no guilt, no no recognition of guilt if you are saying that russians are guilty of genocidal behavior with regard to ukrainians in 18th century no feeling of guilt if you are saying that russians are soviets are uh, and you know stalinists are responsible for millions and millions of deaths they will argue okay it was needed because this and that and and, and that and this negotiations with germany as well and uh Afghan war was also never never really condemned as a as a as an imperialist war and lots of lots of of course the uh Prague 1968 uh, Budapest 1956 n- n- no acceptance of guilt that's why exactly uh, we are talking about this historical opportunity just to put Russia in the situation that it, it will be obliged to recognize reality and now there everything every element is here to to make it possible because what we see we, we see really military defeat at least the, the very beginning of this military defeat of Russia in Ukraine we have this huge solidarity i mean in europe and over the seas so uh, on the on ukrainian side uh we have weapons and we have arguments so this is the right moment to to make this story end and i don't know just to to make it to to, to lead to the logical logical uh, end of this story and paradoxically we see quite a declining mood even among russian propagandists so we see suddenly people who are coming to russian propagandist tv shows recently we we see uh, mr khodaryonok who is uh, kind of a probably can be seen as a voice alternative for dissident voice of uh, retired russian army and maybe the voice of the real uh, acting russian generals who was very critical of of the russian army and saying that uh, russia is now against 42 or something countries in the world and indeed the land lease will help ukrainians uh, but not only this but primarily he said the morale the morale of ukrainian soldiers so russians were very upset understanding that they didn't didn't take kiev remember that russians were very upset understanding they that in over three months they didn't take any big ukrainian city with with the exception of mariupol and kherson and ukrainians are asking questions why kherson was taken so quickly this is another an, another part of the game i think let's come back to it later uh so th- and and they're asking of course a question why this offensive in donbass which lasts for several weeks already well that didn't bring any any visible results except for uh some clear failures for example in uh, in uh, near the village uh, belohorivka right mm-hmm. in in, in luhansk oblast when uh, 
I think 70 Russian military vehicles were destroyed. Oh, much more, over 100. There over 100, okay. Tanks and vehicles, and there were many attempts to cross this river. Maybe another pragmatic uh, aspect of the of this game of saving Putin's face is that uh, we feel that a lot of Europeans and even Americans are a little bit afraid of these uh, uncontrolled processes. They would start in Russia in case of this military defeat. So maybe the reason why uh, we are still afraid to talk about this uh, Ukrainian and Western victory over Russia is that everybody is not sure what will happen next if Russia is defeated. Maybe it will be decomposed in many states. So there is um, the fear of what we don't know because it never happened to Russia to be decomposed and maybe social problems, poverty, uh, migration, for sure, uh, many other problems, maybe. And this aspect of, we just don't, we cannot imagine what will happen if Russia is defeated. So maybe it makes some politicians be so just cautious about, and at least not not so quick, you know, about about um, about Russia behavior. It's not about nuclear threats. I don't feel that uh, the main fear now is nuclear threats coming from Russia, because at least we see less and less of these threats uh, once again, and this uh, doesn't seem to be a realistic scenario. But they are afraid of this uh, disorder of this big country becoming, uh, we don't know what after the defeat. Let's not forget that we always stress on this podcast that Russia is not a nation state, but an empire which has its colonies in the body, in the body of this empire, not overseas, but somewhere here. Let's not forget that Russia, Russian as a, as a name of the people, as a name of the nation, is itself a construct because if we look at the map of Russian Federation right now, we see that even in the European part of Russia, the so-called European part of Russia, there are lots of nationalities which are not Russian per se, eth ethnically, which are not Slavic, which are, uh, which are for example, uh, Ugrofins, like Komi, like uh, Nancy, like... Um, uh, like uh, others, for example, like Hanti, like Mansi, uh, uh, like Mordva, right? There are also Turks, lots of Turkic, tur Turkic people, like Tatars, like Bashkirs, like uh, Tuva, Otiva, Mr. Uh, Mr. Shoigu is also from Tiva, you know, Otuva. Uh, Altai, and there are also Mongoloids like like Buryats. Mm -hmm. So Buryats. there are lots lots of different ethnicities, uh, and of course the Caucasus, the Caucasus, the Dagestanis, the Chechens, the oh, oh, the Ossetians, uh, many many others. So it's it's really a multiple ethnic multiple uh, multitude, and uh, the problem is that okay, Russians are saying about Ukraine that this is an invented country. Because, oh my God, there are Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers. But we, we see the increasing consolidated of Ukrainian national identity. And basically, we see that more or less the idea of Ukraine is more or less in the same borders for, for centuries. Because we can talk about 
uh, of course we can talk about Kiev, we can talk about Chernihiv, we can talk about the, the, the central Ukraine, which were Cossack lands, we can talk about southern Ukraine, which was always an interaction between uh, between uh, Cossacks and Turkic people like uh, Crimean Tatars. We can also talk about Crimea, because there is a long history how Ukrainian Cossacks were stationed in Crimea and were partners of Crimean Crimean uh, Khan or Tatar Khan or the subjects of of the Turkish Empire we can talk about the western Ukraine etc so it's it's more or less the same borders with different changes but um, but if you talk about Russia uh, I understand that the only force that is capable of holding all that is the authoritarian power of the Tsar there is nothing else you know, there is nothing else. There is no ethnic homogeneity. There is no religious homogeneity, etc. So, and I understand this this fear. But let's come back to this idea that let's not humiliate Putin, etc. By the way, I think uh, we we love France with Tanya. We we are both francophones. We we do lots of interviews for for for, for French media. We, we defended our thesis in France. But I think there is there is several problems with France. We have seen it on on these elections, even after this disastrous uh, genocidal war. Uh, almost half of French voted for a clearly Putin agent, Marine Le Pen. But I think there is a feeling of gratefulness of the French people uh, after the Second World War when Stalin said, okay, we, we keep French on board uh, uh, in the same way as, as the Americans and Brits, despite the fact that France basically lost the war. Uh, I think this is this is this element of, of very strange gratefulness to, kind of to the debt, Soviet Union and, 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 and Stalin. Is still, still paying because, yeah, it is because of Soviet Union that France was declared victorious after the Second World War. Even if the part of the country was occupied, half of the country was occupied by Germans, and uh, their relationship with Russia was always specific. I mean, in terms of they recognize that Russia is a great country, you know, they, and maybe it's the reason why they took so long for France to identify Ukraine as an independent state. Um, and this is why we hear these voices today from coming from Macron about uh, these uh, possible steps of Ukraine towards Russia and don't humiliate this big country because in a way, even if there is a clear condemnation of, of Russia did to Ukraine, still it's a big country. This is a kind of a leader, regional, at least regional leader. So let's don't, don't irritate Russia. And don't make but it. But for the French, I would advise not to think in terms of the mid uh, the 20th century, but look at mid 19th century, when there was a, a great uh, Russian poet. I'm ironical here with the word great, Fyodor Tutuchev, who wrote in 1948, uh, 1848, of course, an article, a famous article, La Russie et la Révolution. When he said, in which article, he said that there is one universal force in Europe, it's La Révolution, and he mentioned, he referred to, of course, the French revolutionary movement. Uh, not only the <clears throat> the 
1789 movement, but also 1848 movement. And he said that the only force which, which opposes it is, is Russia. By saying that he meant that Russia is this authoritarian gendarme which will oppress uh, all the revolutionary liberal democratic processes in Europe. Let's not forget this. Let's not forget that initially France is about French Revolution, is about uh, liberty, liberté, égalité, fraternité, and Russia was initially against all that. Okay, we, and, and it is against all that. Instead of Russia, there is probably, instead of France, probably there is the biggest driver is the United States right now, maybe, or Britain. But in a way, the situation is the same. And French are living in this illusion of 19th and 20th century when they were fighting against Germans and were trying to find a big ally on the other, on the other part of the Germany. Yeah, that's so, it. Yeah. Unfortunately, it is. And uh, <clears throat> an important factor, let's try to construct a situation. Okay, everybody decides that Putin needs to save his face. That means we go to negotiations. Ukraine is forced to accept that it lost Kherson, southern Ukraine, parts of Donbass. What happens? Uh, Ukraine will be very much disappointed. Ukrainian society will, will, was, was, was never accept that. There will be lots of lots of talks that there was a treason. Uh, to our foreign audience, I would like to say that we understand that uh, abroad there is a very big cult of Zelensky. Uh, we we also you know share this partially admiration for the way how he speaks to other people to other countries of the world. He's really uh, one of the faces of this war, but. Uh, but there is a lot of talk of, of some problems, of deep problems, especially what happens in the first days of the war. Why the, the bridges from Crimea to Kherson Oblast were not blown up? <clears throat> Why the defense of Mariupol, Berdyansk, Melitopol were not, was not organized in the, in, in, in the necessary way? Why they were Why not preparing was for taken? the war? Because uh, I, don't, I, I do remember several weeks before the war, Zelensky was talking about the normal situation and he seemed to be irritated by these scenarios published by American and British press. We do remember that. And there will be kind of uh, protests in Ukraine and it will lead to a kind of disorder and chaos here in Ukraine. Exactly, because many people in the administration will be accused for... Will be maybe, traitors. Yeah, for, for maybe working for Russians, for treason. And we should not accept that. So uh, we, should, we should not accept that. We should not admit that, especially on this real drive that we are having now, the drive of morale and, and really Ukraine is preparing for counteroffensive. It may be, maybe the last argument, uh, which seems for us to be extremely important, it is about Crimea. Crimea is a kind of a word many European leaders were not willing to pronounce for for many years after 2014. Crimea, we everybody understood that this is Russian and we will never recognize it legally, but this is Russian, so we can do nothing about that. So now for Ukraine, this is existential to get Crimea back. We don't know exactly would it be in a kind of result of military operation or it will be a kind of a 
even diplomatic operation, but not lasting for many years, but a kind of a quick operation, for example, in the result of the um, problems with Putin's regime or change of regime or something like that, kind of a quick operation. So Crimea should be back in Ukraine as a result of this war. Why it is important? Because it we will go back to the point where everything started, and the kind of a justice will be restored, you know. And there will be no argument for Russia. If Russia l- l- uh, loses Ukraine, it will mean that it will it will lose this imperial project for uh, loses Crimea. It will be it will mean that Russia will never restart because it will be a kind of uh, for them it will be kind of they are losing their own territory, and this is possible only with the change of regime. There will be no possibility for Putin to to to, to lose Crimea and to to stay in power. There is no way. And we everybody understands that there is no other historical way for for Russia but to to put Putin away. Otherwise there will be the same story for many decades. Yes. This is true. The last chapter of our podcast, we're talking about Russian uh, disinformation warfare and um, those people who watch our website, ukraineworld.org, they might know that we have a live coverage done by my colleague Vitaly Rybak, Russian disinformation warfare live updates. So what's happening? Uh, The news, the latest news. You probably know that Russia is stealing uh, tons of Ukrainian grain and blocking access to Ukrainian ports. And all this provokes huge problems not only with Ukrainian agricultural exports. Ukraine is the second largest uh, exporter of grain in the world after the United States. Let's not forget. This causes huge troubles in other parts of the world. And uh, United Nations, other organizations are talking about possible hunger famine in uh, in African, some African countries, some Asian, maybe countries that are dependent on Russian, uh, on Ukrainian grain. Um, on May 14th, German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock said that product prices are rising sharply on, on, on global food product prices because of Russia. But Maria Zakharova, the Russian Foreign Ministry spokesperson, said that prices are rising due to sanctions imposed by the collective West under pressure from the United States. And um, Secretary of the Security Council of Russia, Nikolai Patrushev, we understand that he is a very important person uh, for Putin regime, also said that there is a threat of famine due to anti-Russian sanctions. Uh, a, A man called Vladimir Jabarov, who is the first deputy head of the International Committee of the Russian Uh, Federation Council uh, of the Russian Federation accused the West of grain exports from Ukraine, dooming Ukraine to starvation. Quote, they're robbing the Ukrainian people, dooming them, in fact, to starvation, but they will say that Russia is to blame for everything. Jabarov said, well, okay, Russia is to blame because Russia Russia is is, uh, uh, responsible for that. Russia is stealing Ukrainian grain. Russia's occupied the agricultural regions of Ukraine. We've talked about this in one of our podcasts, uh, which is called, I think, Is Russia Preparing a New Holodomor? And this is just repeating of the tactics which was used hundreds of years ago in the 20s and in the 30s. Let's not forget about it. 
let's not forget about this artificial famine in Ukraine. Uh, let's go on. State Duma speaker Vyacheslav Volodin said that the European Union will help Ukraine empty its grain grain storage. Uh, so they are actually saying that by facilitating more Ukrainian exports to the European Union, Ukraine cannot export through the ports, through maritime ways, and the EU is trying to help in this. Uh, so the EU is dooming Ukraine for starvation. This is incredible logic, the really demonical logic, right? A next issue, a, a very interesting issue spotted by our colleagues from Texty or UA, our partners with whom we, we do lots of lots of things, lots of good things. They studied how often the term denazification was used in Russian media since the beginning of the Russian invasion. And on our website and on our Twitter, we published a graph. Very interesting graph is that since the beginning of April, when the Bucha massacre was discovered, this uh, frequency of this term denazification sharply declined. So interesting, right? Why Russians are no longer talking about denazification? Because probably they, they already see this parallel between Bucha and denazification. So denazification means killing ordinary people, making massacres, making genocide. That's what means denazification. And they are afraid of probably of uh, Russian citizens understanding this. And uh, one last point is that uh, recently, a few days ago, there was a summit of ODKB, the so-called security organization, collective security treaty organization, which, um, uh, uh, which combines Russia, Belarus, uh, Armenia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. And here we see Mr. Putin, who was repeating his... Uh, his nightmare lies about everything uh, and said that, for example, that uh, ODKB saved Kazakhstan from preventing the seizure of power in Kazakhstan by extremists. He also said that there is a big issue of ensuring biological safety. And I quote Mr. Putin, I'm sorry for doing that. The Pentagon has created dozens of specialized biolaboratories in our shared region and they are by no means engaged in providing practical medical assistance to the population of the countries where they have launched these activities. Uh, so basically he's hinting that Americans are developing biological weapons, in particular on Ukrainian territories and some other territories. And of course he mentioned Ukraine, uh, in which, quote, neo-Nazism has been on the rise for a long time, uh, to which they, meaning the West, turn a blind eye and therefore actually encourage their activity. End of quote. So we we see that all these narratives, which were you know studying for years about biological laboratories, which were promoted here by Putin, uh, Putin uh, allies like Mr. Medvedchuk, they are now promoted by Putin himself and creating this image that Americans are developing the biological weapons and therefore Russians mm. have to defend Let's against Let's hope it. they'll be back to reality quite soon. So this may maybe is the only way to, to end this uh, absurd and senseless war. Russia coming back to reality. 
This was the Explaining Ukraine podcast. Uh, this series about the war is a joint product by Internews Ukraine and Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Uh, Tichano Harkova, who is in charge of Ukraine of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Myself, Volodymyr Yermolenko, um, chief editor of UkraineWorld.org. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, everywhere else. Uh, subscribe to us. You can also uh, help us, support us through Patreon, patreon.com slash Ukraine World. And stay with us and stand with Ukraine.